Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Whenever you're ready. One second. Pod's texting me. (laughs) (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, uh... Can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media, as well with an assist from the Ramjack Corporation. Um, today, uh, we decided we were going to, we got, we got, more positive feedback than I had anticipated the last time we did an AMA with, with, uh, young guy Denton, uh, my amenuensis and major domo at the American enterprise Institute. And, um, uh, we just decided we we're going to do another one today because we just, uh, decided to do that. And, um, I don't have to justify myself to you. You're not the boss of me. Nobody puts baby in a corner. So with that, uh, guy, uh, I mean, you're always sort of lurking in the remnant, like, you know, like a, a, a hobo at the bus station or, or that creepy dude in the, in the back carols of the library. But um, w- welcome back to a speaking role on the remnant. Thank you. Yes. Lurking like the guy at the back of the movie theater. I think, I think my lurking is preferable to Jack's lurking because I lurk from the shadows and I'm invisible from the recording. Whereas I imagine that in the old days, he would just stare at you silently piercing your soul with his dead eyes while you recorded. And that must've been slightly off-putting a lot of yeah, the time. I, well, I, that's why I, I did most podcasts when we did it in the studio with Jack. I just stared at my feet because <laughs> the, the problem with Jack Butler is when you look into Jack Butler, Jack Butler looks into you. And, um, uh, but, uh, uh, Christian, Christian Bale said about how he, uh, perfected his role in an in American psycho, but he looked at Tom Cruise and tried to replicate the feeling of perfect eyes that had nothing underneath them. And I wouldn't <laughs> say Jack has perfect eyes, but there's definitely nothing behind them as he stares at the soul. Uh, you know, he, he, I, I'm sure he actually blinks. Um, I don't think I've I ever just, seen it. I don't think I've ever seen it. Um, he looks at you very, very intently. You know who also has, and I've talked about this before on here, is, uh, Tom Cotton. Tom Cotton has this thousand yard stare thing that when you talk to him and like Mike Gallagher, you know, in Cotton's defense, lots of people tell me, Oh no, once you get through his defense perimeters, he's a really, he's a nice guy and he's good to talk to and all that kind of stuff. Every time I've been in a room with Tom Cotton or talked to Tom Cotton, I think about that scene in Jaws where (laughs) Quinn is saying, you ever looked into the shark's eyes? They got doll's eyes, lifeless eyes. Um, And uh, he makes me it makes me feel unsafe, but he, uh, he does look like he's planning something like he's perpetually on the hunt. I, I will say, though, Cotton is is has gone up in my estimation over the years because I think he's actually a pretty serious guy. And um, um, would that I could say that about many other politicians these days. So, um, 
where do you want to begin? And you can, you can, you can attest that you've been working fully with Coopers and Librand, the accounting firm, and I have not seen any of these questions in advance. As yes, as always, Wolfram in the heart, uh, jabbed your hand with a blade, made you sign the contract in blood. So there's no more Shanshu prophecy and you haven't read these questions. I can verify. It's so sad. Like when I first started making Wolfram and heart jokes, uh, People thought, oh, you're just trying to seem like you're young and with it. And like now it's just, it just dates you. There's no like youngness to it whatsoever. Cause like kids that kids of these days don't know it. Oh, and for listeners out there, don't be ashamed for not knowing this reference. You should be a little embarrassed by it. Um, I'm too old to know it and Guy is too young to know it. Uh, but um, it's, it's a spinoff from Buffy the Vampire Slayer called Angel. And the, the evil law firm, like Hell's Law Firm on Earth was called... Wolfram and Hart. So there you go. Often confused with AEI. Uh, but we got a lot of questions, and quite conveniently, they break down into categories. I thought an interesting one, there are several book-related questions, and an interesting one that I thought it might be fun to start with was, a, a listener asks, what would you say are or were the most reasonable critiques leveled at liberal fascism beyond the knee-jerk criticisms that stemmed from its title? That's an interesting one. I'd have to go back and refresh my memory about some of them. I mean, there was a New York Times write-up that was friendly grading on a curve um, that thought it was too much muchness to it. Um, uh, Arnold Kling tried to split the baby, if, if memory serves, saying that it was sort of deliberately too provocative and trollish in its title and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, there were some important arguments to be made in there. I remember having a deep and abiding problem with Michael Moynihan's review of it um, uh, at Reason, which on the whole was fair, but I thought he just took some, I, I can't remember what they are, some leaps. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, often... I mean, sadly, the more common phenomenon was a generally na nasty review with fair paragraphs inside of it. Um, although I have to say, you know, so the, what's his name? David Oshinsky, the guy who reviewed it for the New York Times. Um, he was more fair than a lot of places. Um, uh, because, I mean, I, I, I've made this point many times since, you know, like they're, I think you can. I think it's very easy to wildly overstate my influence as a quote-unquote public intellectual, um, and it makes me very nervous and creeped out when people try to talk in those terms. Um, uh, but I do think I deserve more credit than anybody else I can think of. Now that doesn't mean that I'm. Uh, um, I deserve the most credit. I just. I, I don't know what was going on behind the scenes ten years ago on this front, but I think I deserve the most credit for uh, taking as much grief as I did and for mo helping move the zeitgeist against Woodrow Wilson. Um, again, I'm not alone in this. There are a lot of people who have been doing it, but I did it earlier and stronger um, than a lot of people. Uh, Ronald Pastrito at the Claremont Institute um, and Hillsdale uh, was a leader in all this kind of stuff, but I helped popularize some of his things. Uh, Glenn Beck picked up my stuff and, and popularized it more. Um, but anyway, uh, Oshin I think his name was Oshinsky, University of Texas professor. I always point this out to people. It's like, so 
his review did not disagree with anything until I got to FDR and he was an FDR historian. And a lot of people are like, you don't understand FDR. FDR had this really wonderful temperament and he was a much more complicated figure and he helped save American capitalism and American democracy and yada, yada, yada. Um, I'm open to some of those arguments. I don't think he's a demonic figure the way Wilson is, but uh, FDR was a representative form of politics I did not like, right? He was essentially president for life, among other things. All of the things that the left hated about McCarthyism got their start under FDR, but when they were aimed rightward, no one seemed to care. Um, we can get into the weeds on some of that stuff. The American Bolsheviks loved using the Smith Act against the Trotskyites, but then when the Smith Act was used against the Bolsheviks, they were all like, that's not fair. Anyway, he, he had a fairly f- reasonable uh, and approving take, or no objections to my stuff up through Wilson, which included my arguments about Hitler, my arguments about Mussolini, my arguments about Wilson, and then he gets to FDR. As Jonah goes off, the, Goldberg goes off the rails with with FDR. I think reasonable people can disagree with him on that. The reason I brought this up was that the headline for it in the Times was in the Times Book Review was Heil Woodrow, and it was supposed to be utterly mocking. Like, w- listen to this crackpot who thinks that like. Woodrow Wilson was not only a bad guy, but actually kind of fascistic, if not the first totalitarian dictator in Western civilization, a point that, by the way, Robert Nisbet and others have made before me. And now, Heil Woodrow does not seem like a something that you might not see at Vox or Mother Jones or someplace like that. So anyway, um, I don't know. I feel like I'm forgetting something, but uh, for the most part, um, it's like, and, you know, in retrospect, for some understandable reasons, nuanced on the one hand, on the other hand, takes pleased nobody when it came to my book. So if, you know, like Tom Soul loved it, Tom Wolf loved it, all those, you know, basically everyone named Tom, I respect, loved it. Um, but if, if, you, if you like this but hated that, it was difficult to, to write that because you piss off the people who want you to completely hate it and you piss off the people who want you to completely like it. And, so I can't remember. I feel like, again, I feel like I'm being unfair, but I will stop speaking. I thought this was a fun one. What is the most enjoyable thing about the process of writing a book besides the end result? This is going to be different for everybody. I like going down rabbit holes. I like discovering something that I didn't know before that seems to work with my argument and then discovering that if you've, pull on this little line through these little intellectual subterranean cave tunnels, it opens up into these giant caverns and you're like, Oh my gosh, look at all these things I didn't know. Um, I love that feeling. Um, um, and it's one of the reasons why I will end up like with suicide of the West, I would end up writing like 20,000 word chapters on some obscure point that my editor was like, yeah, this is not a chapter. Um, but, um, uh, that's the thing I, I like the most about the actual process. I don't like the writing process of books. I like writing G files, right? You know, I, I sometimes enjoy writing my syndicated column, but um, I don't enjoy the process of, of writing books. It's, uh, I mean, the actual writing part. I like the research stuff. I like being motivated and really into something and having some new thing to talk about and obsess on. But um, other than that, I just like the doneness. The doneness in the checks. That'll be the title of your unofficial biography. 
Or my official biography. <laughs> or your official biography. <laughs> and it also sets up the next question neatly, which is, how do you feel about Suicide of the West five years later, looking back? Are you happy with how it turned out? Is there anything major you would change? Were you pleased with the reception? Do you think it had the kind of impact you wanted, etc.? Um, I'm generally very pleased with it, I think. I think it holds up beginning to end better than liberal fashion does, fascism does, for sure. Um, I wish I had paid more attention at the time or had just moved up the pub date or moved down the pub date, adjusted the pub date so that I could have addressed more squarely a lot of the new nationalism stuff. Because I think it was a little, I saw it coming, right? But I, by the time I'm writing about it, it hadn't like spilled out so fully into the public square. And I wish I had addressed more fully like Yoram Hazoni and, um, and Patrick Dineen's stuff. Um, I think that was a problem. I thought the response, re- reaction to it, um, I don't think I got the reaction necessarily, like every, every author, this is not Sour Grapes, the book did well, I'm happy about it. But, um, you know, yeah, I'm pissed at like a bunch of places didn't review it. Like, I, I, like why the Washington Post didn't review it is a mystery to me. Um, I don't think the journal reviewed it, which I found to be a little bit of a betrayal. But at that point, you know, that was part of the problem was that um, um, so many people wanted to pigeonhole it into this stuff about the Trump stuff. Right, because it was in the thick of, you know, I was very prominent as a Trump critic, uh, unlike now where I'm a huge Trump supporter. Um, and uh, Or just not prominent at all as a Trump critic, depending on... That's right, that's right. Uh, well, no, now everybody's in the pool, so like finding Trump critics is, is, it's like looking for who's not Waldo in the picture. I thought that the, again, I, I really don't want to sound like sour grapes because everybody, any, any book that makes any kind of splash has cheap shots taken at it. I think that's always been the case for everybody. I thought the stuff that, you know, I thought Rusty Reno's attack on it was, I want to be really clear about this because, you know, Rusty's apparently a prominent intellectual. I thought it was really just juvenile and dumb. Um, Michael Duran, who's at the um, Hudson Institute, um, in the process of running to the defense of Emerald Robinson, a deranged, uh, hateful, idiot, uh, conspiracy theorist who's been banned from all sorts of places, but he thought she was right, wrote something brilliant that basically danced on, on Charles Krauthammer's grave, went out of his way to write this long piece about how um, in defense of her by uh, attacking uh, Suicide of the West, and he does this long summary of the book as a, as a sort of zombie Reagan defense of Reagan, Reaganite form policy and blah, 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 blah. It was just a lie. I mean, it was a lie or he just, uh, just guessed and thought it was true because like the word, the name Reagan showed up once in the book and it was just a quote about, you know, the, about freedom, not, about liberty, not being, um, in our blood. You have to fight for it in every generation or something like that. Um, so the things like that, that, you know, clearly I remember, <laughs> um, and, uh, but I was surprised, you know, American conservative gave it, you know, uh, given the givens, a, a fair and decent review. You've all, this is, you know, I don't think he was at AI yet. Gave it a really wonderful review, which I'm, I'm, I'm super grateful for. I think if I had to do it over again, I'd change the title. 
if I had, I go back to my working title, which was called the tribe of Liberty. I think it was just, it's release was kind of poorly timed given where the zeitgeist was. And I could have either done it earlier and gotten ahead of it and really sort of framed the debate better, or I could have done it later and responded to a lot of the stuff that had, you know, suddenly spilled out and taken over um, the debate, but you cannot, I mean, I know so many people who are much, much more badly screwed by timing with their books. I mean, I remember when Byron York's book about the vast left wing conspiracy came out um, the week the Pope died and like he just got screwed and it was a good book and he worked out really hard on it. And um, I've told the story a million times on, on nine 11, I want to give you my full, what was I doing on nine 11 story? But like um, I was watching Fox, I was flipping around the channels the morning of nine 11 and uh, on Fox and friends, there was this guy, I can't remember his name. He was a Newsweek reporter. He had some big scoop about how, um, like, uh, Souter or somebody was going to change their vote on the Supreme court and Bush v. Gore. And that was going to change everything. But then they got, they, they decided not to or something. It was something that mattered a lot because people really cared about Bush v. Gore back then. And then they were like, so glad to have you here. Can you hold on one second? We have a report of a small uh, two-seat passenger plane hitting the World Trade Center. We're just going to go take a feed from that. They come back and say, okay, now tell us about your book. Wait, hold on one second. It really looks like this is a more serious thing. I'm sure we'll have you back on soon. Oh. And I, like, like, I don't know that anybody had him on again about that book ever. Because like, no one was doing anything other than 9-11 stuff for two years after that. So those things happen. It's always terrifying when you're working on a book because you really put your life into something like that. You know, you really pour your, your heart and soul into it. And then you are just, it's just up to the gods about whether the news cycle is going to be friendly to you. Or, or whether people are even going to care. Or whether they can pronounce the name of your book as in the tyranny of the Clitch's case. That's correct. Yes. It's, it's, it's a crapshoot all the way down. <laughs> Punditry time. Uh, how okay. do you feel about the unfolding controversy at Stanford Law School? Is higher education doomed as we know it? So, uh, if you listen to the the dispatch live I did with um, was just me and Sarah, um, where she had she attended my talk at Sea Island, you know, where I did this whole thing about wokeness is essentially a. a Veblen good or a positional good. There's a difference. Um, and uh, she really liked it and wanted to talk more about it. So we talked more about it. I'm not sure I did a good job explaining it on the Dispatch Live thing. But um, I think about the Stanford thing in the context of all of that. Um, um, in so, so I, my basic argument is just simply that a big chunk of wokeness on college campuses. If you were a visitor from Mars, you would, or if you were a, a visitor from Mars is the wrong way to put it. If you were an immortal, right? Um, sort of like had the Albert J. Knox sensibility of there's nothing new under the sun, every generation, you know, the patterns change, but the, the underlying phenomenon is the same. Um, sort of like my argument about how like, if you'd been around long enough, you would recognize that North Korea is not a Marxist Leninist dictatorship. It is basically a monarchy with an aristocracy that has notions of nobility and castes and serfs and all these kinds of things. 
the words change, but the underlying thing is the same. I think you could look at the stuff that goes on in a lot of elite campuses as um, essentially an exercise in class class and status differentiation where um, wokeness is essentially in a very expensive language, right? It takes a lot of effort and money to, um, I should say effort and or money to afford the ability to sort of speak it fluently. And in the 19th century, never mind the 10th century, that language would be French. But we don't do that now, right? It like used to be like if you spoke French, there was a sure giveaway. If you were an English-speaking country and you spoke French, it was a sure giveaway that like you were raised by sort of upper crust type of people. And now the sort of woke stuff is in part, I'm not saying it's not a pernicious ideology or any of that kind of stuff, but in part of it, it is look how rich I am that I can afford this really stupid bullshit. I can afford really bad ideas or my parents can afford really bad ideas. You know, I've gotten to this guy, uh, Rene Girard a little bit, um, who I think maybe esoteric forbidden, um, knowledge kind of thing. But, you know, part of his point is that, uh, he calls it victimism. Uh, um, others would call it, um, victimology, the civilization, civilizational problem of guilt. And but regardless, he goes, he has this thing about how victimism isn't really about concern for victims. It is about using the ideology of concern as a way to attain and hold on to power. And so a bunch of rich, progressive white people, disproportionately white people, who are so privileged, they actually talk all the time about their privilege. They actually confess their privilege. Say that they need to be empowered. They need to control the access points to these institutions because they're concerned about the right people. And the right has its own version about white straight males being the new victims. And, and so a different set of elites claim that they deserve power because they're concerned about a different set of victims. So I think a lot of this explains the sociology of a lot of, of, of this stuff. That said, I think the Stanford thing, the thing that actually bothers me about the Stanford thing, I'm really getting tired. I mean, I, 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 I don't want David French to go all Obi-Wan Kenobi and sense a disturbance in the force here, but like, I'm really tired of these things being framed as First Amendment issues. Stanford is a private institution, and even at public universities, it bothers me how much this is done as a, as a free speech First Amendment issue. Regardless, Stanford, I don't know, is it the top three law schools in the country? I don't know where its ranking is, but if it's below five, I'd be stunned. It's not a college campus. It is a professional school to train professionals to be officers of the friggin' court, Right. And if the reports are true, I thought Ed Whalen had said something about this. If the reports are true that law school students said to a visiting judge, I hope your daughters get raped. I don't think this is a complicated thing. They should be expelled or at least suspended or at least severely punished so that people in the future don't think this is something that does, this is the kind of behavior that doesn't have consequences. There is, let me just tell you right now that like if there was a really important person who was visiting or a friggin' DoorDash delivery guy, and you said to them, Guy Denton, <laughs> I hope your daughters get raped. You would be fired and deported immediately. I wouldn't think twice about it, right? But like, particularly if like a visiting judge came to visit AEI and he's walking down the hallway to come talk to me or Yuval or something, and you say, I hope your daughters get raped, <laughs> you're fired. I'm like, don't even clean out your desk. We'll ship it to you. You're fired, right? And like, 
Similarly, there is not a law firm in the country that wouldn't fire a partner for doing something like that. Um, there's not a business in the country. Imagine having like working at a bank and a potential client comes in and, you know, the head of sales says, hey, I hope your daughters get raped. You're fired. I mean, this is not complicated and it's not a free speech thing. It is like just a common sense decency thing. And even a business as poorly run as the dispatch would enforce that. For sure. <laughs> and um, like Steve and I would race past each other to see who got to say you're fired first. And not, I mean, like a church. I mean, imagine, I, I, you know, some churches, I guess they have to welcome all parishioners and stuff and like for, hate the sin, forgive the sinner kind of thing. But like if there was a visiting pastor and as he walked up the aisle towards the, the, the you know, the front of the church to give a sermon and you say, I hope your daughters get raped. Like it would cause problems, right? But like somehow we're supposed to think that this is the kind of behavior that makes you a better freaking lawyer. Like, like lawyers actually have to deal not just with opposing counsel that they don't like and that they disagree with, but their own clients that they don't like and disagree with. And the idea that this kind of stuff is encouraged or, 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 uh, you know, at least uh, allowed to happen is insane to me. Schools are, most schools I am aware of, at least most elite schools, still have somewhere on the books like these things called honor codes and speech. I, again, I am, I, I, I'm much less of a free speech nut than like I get lumped into because I just think the issue climate makes me more free speech than I actually am. But I am for absolute academic freedom for tenured faculty in colleges, right? I am for uh, academic freedom for students to ask crazy questions in the classroom, but not like, have you raped any nuns, professor, right? I mean, like ask questions about the subject matter to raise, un, you know, uncomfortable topics to explore different things. Uh, you know, when we had Keith Whittington on, uh, it never really had occurred to me before was that you sort of, you can tell where the sacred cows or the dogma are in higher education by what kind of issues test free speech. And so, uh, or test academic freedom. And so like academic freedom, you know, originally it comes out of like, uh, astronomy and science stuff because, uh, questioning the, you know, heliocentrism and all that and Galileo and blah, blah, blah. We can do that all day long. Um, because back then the, the metaphysical dogmas about the nature of the universe and all that were the, were the sort of the hot button issues. And now like, in science, I think they pretty much get free reign to sort of do and say whatever they want, though I, I, I suspect um, the whole what is, a, what is a female in the biological sciences is probably more controversial than it was five years ago. Um, but the, the dogmas have all moved out of hard science. You know, the, the taboo subjects have moved out of the hard sciences for the most part and into the humanities. And um, and into things like law and, 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 um, and I should say the social sciences too, but out of the hard sciences. And, um, and I think that just more broadly, you know, this is something I talk about a lot, but this notion that somehow being a good, um, that it is essential to the college experience and now apparently the law school experience to be a protester, to be a dissenter, to like, uh, speak truth to power and cause a ruckus and cause a fuss. 
this is just a garbage idea. Um, like I'm all in favor of protest when protest is warranted by the issue, but like protest for its own sake is another word of another word for jackass. Right. Um, it's, uh, it's like my problem with contrarianism. I'm all for being a contrarian when you're being contrary, contrary to something that you think is wrong. But if you just take a contrary position without saying, Hey, by the way, I'm taking a devil's advocate position. So let's, let's hash this out and have a serious conversation. That's fine. But if you just sort of really angrily and passionately and righteously take contrary positions to the larger group to just sort of stand out and be a rebel and be a dissident, you're a jackass. Um, or you're very likely to be a jackass. And so I think a lot of our elite institutions are essentially teaching jackassery as an essential part of the educational process. And so I, if I were running Stanford Law, it would not be, um, if you could actually prove it, right? Because like lawyers are supposed to care about evidence and all that kind of thing. But I would be just merciless on anybody who behaved as egregiously as that. Well, there goes my opening line to Yuval when I meet with him tomorrow. So thanks for that, Jonah. Sure. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. It's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Uh, A listener asks, what do you think of the American healthcare system? How would you reform it? Do you think any other country has a superior model that we should try and emulate or not? 
Uh, what are your thoughts, generally speaking? So fully stipulated, and this, this, is, this, is, not, this is not something I'm proud of. I, it's been a while since I looked at healthcare policy, like in the Obamacare times. I read a lot of this stuff. I talked to a lot of people about this stuff. It was like the topic of conversation for a long time. Um, you know, at NR, we would write editorials about it. We would, I would write columns about it. I haven't looked into it too much lately, except as an entitlement problem. That said, having gone through what I went through with my mom, I am so skeptical of uh, the ability to impose programmatic savings into Medicare, um, just seeing how the bureaucracy works. I mean, I, maybe like we just did this podcast with Phil Howard, you know, uh, maybe getting rid of a lot of the public sector unions and, 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 and making an, an, MF, an emphasis in making government work efficient and um, intelligent and, and cost saving would work, but that's a long way from now. And I think part of the problems with Medicare are part of the problems with, are, are, are emblematic of big chunks of our healthcare system as a whole insofar as, um, well, first, I think we blundered in this whole, you get your healthcare through your job thing. This is a classic example. This is one of the classic examples of what that prompted Milton Friedman to say, there's nothing so permanent as a temporary government program, right? And during World War II, when there were wage freezes, firms had to come up with a way to sort of sweeten their offers over to compete for workers. And so one of the things they did was they started making more generous um, health insurance provisions through the job. And then that became sort of written into the warp and woof of the industrialized economy. I think that was probably a mistake. I generally believe that if you can make consumers of products actually care about price, you get more efficiency, right? So this is the argument about why veterinary care in America is typically much better than human care. Um, because it's a, it's a fee for service thing for the most part. I mean, now pet insurance is getting kind of popular, but still you're paying directly for it yourself. Um, you're not getting it through an employer or anything like that. Also, and this is something I have personal problems with, but the trial lawyers can't get at malpractice with animals the way they can with humans, because there's a, there's generally a $500 or that's the last time I checked $500 cap on damages for, for, uh, negligence with, with animals and like negligence with humans can cost you 500,000 or $5 million. And so, uh, malpractice insurance is much higher, right? Obviously for, um, people who work with human, with people who work with bipeds as a general approach, I think if we could figure, you know, put it this way, if you had an expense account where the people authorized, where your bosses did not care how much you spent on lunch, they just said, we'll pay for your lunch no matter what. Um, you'd have a lot more lobster, steak and lobster for lunch than if you were capped um, at like 20 bucks and then anything over came out of your pocket, right? A lot of the distortions in the healthcare system come from this mismatch of people not actually, the actual consumers or users of the care feeling inoculated from the actual price because somebody else is sort of covering it. How you get rid of that at this point, I have no freaking clue. I mean, I really don't. Um, and you know, I hear anecdotal things about this healthcare system or that healthcare system that was good. I never know if that's actually emblematic or if that's just one person's experience because they happen to, you know, be able to go to the right kinds of hospitals and all that kind of thing. Um, I do know every, every 
everybody, every congressman and senator I know from a northern border state, you know, talks about how um, the Canadians still cross the border all the time for healthcare. You know, the lines there are crazy. It's funny. I was actually, you know, I'm a huge fan of the Telegraph um, Ukraine, um, the latest podcast. And about a month ago, they had a Ukrainian woman who helps Ukrainian refugees in the UK sort of get acclimatized and work the system and all that kind of stuff. And it was really fascinating. <laughs> She's like, yeah, one of the things that really frustrates the Ukrainians is who come here, re- Ukrainian refugees who come here, is how bad the British healthcare system is. Like apparently, according to this woman, and I mean, it wasn't like she was there to do, be anything but grateful to the UK for taking in refugees, and she wasn't there as a health health policy person. So I'm taking her anecdotes as actually representative of reality. Um, she was like, "Yeah, you know, like in the Ukraine, all of our medical stuff is digitized. We do everything, all the portals to get appointments. It's all online. You can get to the dentist in a day, you know, two days. You can get doctor's appointments the same week." Uh, and you can do it all online. It's great. And then you come to the UK and you get these letters from NHS giving you an appointment in six weeks or six months, depending on what the thing is. And so she was saying there were actually, she actually knew and had relatives, I believe, who would fly back to Ukraine for dental appointments rather than wait in the UK. And um, that tells me something, right? I mean, and, you know, and there are lots of reasons for why this stuff gets expensive, bowel moles, disease, and all the, all the rest. But um, I do not think that uh, the sort of Bernie Sanders approach would make things better, um, even in the aggregate, right? I mean, like, you know, there's a whole utilitarian argument about, sure, it would make things worse for the 1% or the top 20%, but it would make things better for the people in the bottom 50% or something like that. I don't believe that's true. I really don't. But I also think that the current system is really, really bad. And one of the problems that, Republicans got themselves into during the Obamacare thing was refusing to acknowledge that the current healthcare system in America sucks and does need to be reformed. Instead, they put all their eggs in what Obama wants to do is terrible, but we have no alternative. And if you say that to a wonk, you know, if you say that around like Jim Capretta or some, you know, one of our healthcare policy guys, they'll break a bottle and try to cut you because they had plans, right? There were, there's smart wonks out there who have healthcare policy plans. so it wasn't like the Republicans didn't have a alternative. It's that they had 50 alternatives and they couldn't agree on any one of them, which is the same thing politically as having no alternative. Several listeners had questions of conservative dorkery. Uh, for one, how would you explain the term paleocon for probably the vast majority of people in this country and even among listeners who don't understand it? And where do you think it fits into conservatism today? I thought it was... Really subtle and ironic the way you asked that question. How would you answer <laughs> what a paleocon is? I mean, I heard that. I mean, it's like next year you're going to be telling me that, you know, I should listen to more Wagner. I'm sorry, Va- Wagner. Um, hey, no, I, um, did, hey, I did serve bagels this morning, <laughs> appropriately enough. Um, so stipulated that there are paleocons who will not like this answer. But then again, there are a lot of paleocons who do not like me. So screw it. I was going to say, would they like you whatever you said? No, that's the, that's the point is like, like the, 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 the lack of good faith from a lot of them, um, makes it impossible to have this conversation. But, um, the first thing to remember is just, just, I'm not talking about the like the underlying philosophy of paleocons. So is very old and we can have a different conversation about that in a second, but the term paleocon is more recent 
than the term neocon. And that's the important thing to keep in mind is that paleocons in the early 80s started calling themselves paleocons to differentiate themselves from the neocons. Um, because the word neo, the phrase neocon came first and there's there are arguments about who coined it. And I don't, I can, I can, trust me, I can do them, but we're not going to do that here. But for people who don't know, you know, neocons were disproportionately Jewish, but there are a lot of non-Jewish neocons. A lot of paleocons do not want to acknowledge that sometimes. Not all of them, but quite a few. And the great Ur battle of neocons versus so-called paleocons was over Bill Bennett, Catholic, by the way, who Reagan appointed to head, I think it was the National Endowment for Humanities, in 82, over this guy, Mel Bradford, who was not a neocon. And so the people who rallied to Bradford came to be known or came to style themselves as paleocons because they didn't like these new interlopers into conservatism. The, some of the different flavors of paleocon really depend on which neocons they don't like, right? Because they're, again, they're differentiating themselves. I think that the way, the way I would define a paleocon today is just simply someone who claims, because I think often they are full of fecal matter on this stuff, but someone who claims to be representing the truer, more authentic strains of American conservative thought, early National Review, rightly understood kind of thing. There is a big subsection like, I, look, let me put it this way. I don't think all people who would use the term paleocon are bad people by any stretch of the imagination. I don't know that Michael Brennan Doherty would still call himself a paleocon, but he is certainly paleocon adjacent. I think he's a wonderful guy, really smart. I disagree with him on a bunch of things. Don't think he's a, there's a bigoted bone in his body. He's a decent human being, yada, yada, yada. And there are a lot of people like him out there. So I don't want to be too sweeping and, and insidious about this. At the same time, there is a subset of the paleocon crowd that is deeply invested in the lost cause stuff of the South. And the most amazing manifestation of this was actually not paleoconservatives, but paleo-libertarians, who of those sort of Lou Rockwell strike kind of really rallied around. I mean, they'll deny this. They'll say, look, we were about states' rights and federalism and all these kinds of things. But you didn't have to scratch too deep, you know, about some of the people who would like write at places like V-Dare. You didn't have to scratch too deep to find this bizarre oxymoron um, lurking amidst the muck, which was of libertarians for slavery, which is just uh, so philosophically problematic. It's really difficult to get your head around. And so today I, I feel like the, I mean, maybe Chronicles still calls itself paleoconservative. I don't know. And I don't much care, but for the most part, it feels like the paleocon types have basically given up calling themselves paleocons because they don't like the word conservative now. And instead they call themselves nationalist. And one of the great and, and tragic things uh, of this moment is that some of the worst enemies of the former paleocon crowd, the sort of the Claremont um, Institute crowd um, are now essentially paleocons. They're just under the, under the flag of nationalism instead of paleoconservatism. Um, and I think it's sad and pathetic and weird and not everybody Claremont, there are good people there still, but, uh, it certainly, if you go by the, in, their internet presence, you know, their Twitter presence and that kind of thing and their, their involvement in politics, the, 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 the crazy weird people are really, um, 
drowning out the decent, sane, smart people. From one question that may make you uncomfortable to another, a listener asks, would you summarize your disagreements with or criticisms of Russell Kirk's for conservative mind? Is there anything worthwhile in it? And where would you point to a better view of conservatism? Uh, I can't get too deep in the weeds on that. I'm, I'm, a fine, I'm fine talking about it. Look, I, I, think, I think that there's a lot to be. I mean, there's a lot that's worthwhile out of the conservative mind. And in Kirk's writing generally, I mean, I, I never got into his ghost stories. You know, John Miller tells me they're great. Kirk is a very smart guy. He knew a lot of things about a lot of things. I just don't necessarily, I, I, I don't like the particularly sort of gothic cobwebby style of writing that he does. Um, that's the way it felt to me. I felt, felt like it was work reading some of his things. And so just stylistically, really not, not my cup of tea necessarily. But he's, you know, he's more lucid and, and, and readable than a lot of people, um, that, that even some people that I agree with. It just, just wasn't for me. I think that his theory of the case about conservatism rests way too much on basically, here are the writers I really like going back the last 400 years, and I'm going to string them together and assert that they are, uh, they define American conservatism. And I, I just don't find that necessarily persuasive. I also find, look, I mean, I'm of a school that says there were lots of things called conservatism. There were lots of strands of conservatism in American um, intellectual and public life prior to, let's call it 1945. But there was no conservative ideology, qua ideology, right? There was definitely libertarianism of one stripe or another, like an actual ideology, ideology of freedom. Herbert Spencer, all these guys, they spent a lot of time thinking about these things. There was certainly sort of the Manchester liberalism version of all of that that goes back to the founding, if not earlier. But conservatism as an ideology is really a product of the post-World War II moment and really a product of anti-communism. Like if you go back and you look at Ron Radosh's book, Prophets of the Right, about all these right-wingers from the 1910s and 1920s and 1930s. Love Ron Radosh. Some of his stuff on communism is fantastic. It's like, what the hell is this guy talking about? I mean, it's like John Dewey is one of the right-wingers in it. It was so, the notion of what constituted right-wing was so distorted by the issue of communism on the left that, you know, again, this is a big part of my argument in, in, in liberal fascism is that um, one of the reasons why we so tightly associate fascism with being right wing is that according to Stalin's theory of social fascism issued in, I think, 32, um, it was a fatwa that went out that said any form of progressivism or socialist politics that isn't loyal to Ma Moscow is objectively fascist or objectively right-wing. And the problem was a lot of useful idiots in America believed it. So there was a time when, according to the Communist Party in the United States, FDR was a, a fascist and a right-winger. John Dewey, fascist. Go down the list of all these very progressive left-wing guys got called right-wingers and fascists. Trotsky, you know, he described fascism as right-wing socialism. I think he's right that it was right-wing socialism. But like on a spectrum that considers socialism left-wing, it still means it's left-wing. It's just a different flavor of socialism. And so, um, anyway, my, my, the only reason I get, I'm going down that rabbit hole is to explain that sort of this notion of sort of liberty-loving, uh, fusionist, um, limited government, the founding was super terrific, awesome. 
um, conservatism that I grew up with, um, that you looked at from abroad, from the refrigerator box that you were raised in, um, uh, that ideology was kind of new. You know, so Russell Kirk liked to quote this guy, H. Stewart Hughes, who would say, ideology is the negation of conservatism. Kirk really believed in a lot of ways, in this sense, he was authentically Burkean, right? That ideology was the kind of stuff that spills out of French and German labs with poor quality control, right? And then it infects people's brains and people go crazy. And that's how you get the French Revolution. That's how you get all, that's how you get communism. That's how you get these terrible things. And meanwhile, conservatism with a small C rejects all this abstraction, rejects all these highfalutin concepts and instead deals with the real world from the ground up rather than from above, right? So like glorious revolution, good. French revolution, bad. American revolution, good, because it actually took human nature into account, right? We were all built from the crooked timber of humanity and never made straight and all that stuff. So I don't blame Kirk for not liking a more robust, affirmative, proactive, ideological definition of conservatism. But I'm much more in agreement with Tom Sowell, who once wrote that it takes an ideology to beat an ideology. In the context of the Cold War, in the context of the post-New Deal era, you actually had to think through your dogmatic positions and lay them out and come up with a coherent ideological response to what you perceived as external threats and internal threats. And that's the process that yielded us conservatism. And this is one of the reasons why I really have always thrown a lot of shade on the way people talk about neoconservatism, because a lot of the so-called paleocon types talk about neoconservatism as being this product of, uh, you know, it's all these ex-communists who like became conservatives and you can't trust them. And they point to like Irving Kristol was, you know, a Trotskyite for like 10 minutes. And they point to a few others like that, which is all fair. It's fine. And it's absolutely true that Irving and these guys were disillusioned by communism and became conservative because of it. That's absolutely true. But then you go back and you look at the founding masthead of National Review and it's full of like much more impressive communists or ex-communists. You know, uh, you know, Max Eastman, Trotsky's literary agent and, and translator, James Burnham, the editor of The Daily Worker and very close friends with, with Trotsky and all those guys. Whitaker Chambers was a friggin' Soviet spy. You just go down the list, there are all these former communists. And so anyway, I think my problem with Kirk stem from his belief that conservatism really is just a bunch of personality traits. It's the pluralization of a bunch of personality traits in American literary history. And that conservatism is a more literary thing. It's more regional, blah, blah, blah. It's much more tolerant of things like the Jim Crow South. I'm not saying this about Kirk, but about that, the sort of the world of Kirk fans have more nuanced views on a lot of those kind of things. And you got to remember, like, you know, as, as Matt Connetti writes about in his book, the reason why Hayek does his whole why I'm not a conservative spiel at the Mount Pelerin Society was to reject Russell Kirk's definition of conservatism. Because Kirk, in Hayek's view, and I would agree, was much more enamored with the sort of European definitions of conservatism, natural aristocracies, the role of authority, all these kinds of things. And, um, and so it's a good faith thing. I met, I've met Kirk's wife a few times and I always feel bad when I, I sound like I'm trying to anathematize the guy. I think he's an important contributor. I just, he's not my cup of tea.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. A few lighter questions to end on. Uh, one. And no, man, we're going to marathon, man. Uh, it's true, yeah, but a few lighter <laughs> questions for the next hour and a half. A listener <laughs> asks, what's the best book to screen adaptation? And he says, I immediately think of Dune, Lord of the Rings, and dare I say Game of Thrones, given that it fell off a cliff once they abandoned the books. But could you think of a different one, or would you agree with one of those? I mean, I, agree, I, I certainly agree the latest Dune is a good adaptation. Obviously, you still lose things. I got to say, I was just talking about this with somebody at my cigar shop the other day. Uh, I think the adaptation of Man in the High Castle, at least the first, I guess, two seasons of it, was better than the book. The book is super trippy with this I Ching stuff that I, don't, I still don't understand. But uh, I thought just sort of s- the cinematography um, and the, atm- so the atmospherics of the, the screen adaption of Man in the High Castle for Amazon Prime was really great. I don't know. Um, I feel like there's some like obvious answer to this. I suspect that All the President's Men is better as a movie than it is as a book. But um, and I, you know, I, I I never read The Godfather. Um, I have friends who say it's a great book, um, but my sense is is that the it, it one of the very few cases you can probably point to where the movie version is closer to real literature than the book that it's based on. Um, um, and certainly, I, don't, I mean, how could you possibly argue that, that um, it was a very successful screen adaptation of a book? I mean, even if the book is a thousand times better, it, it did pretty well. I don't know. I mean, I was just going through on IMDb uh, all the various titles that Stormy Daniels was in. I'd have to go back and check to see if any of them were books first. For the purposes of researching a column, of course. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Not, not as a special birthday treat. Um, uh, a, a, a separate listener asks, what are your thoughts on the ethics of dog sled racing? I think they've gotten a lot better. Um, they used to, in the old days, treat those dogs that couldn't make the run very badly. You know, in the Iditarod and all that. I am sure there are some unethical people who do unethical things still, but I've visited at least twice dog sled places in Alaska, um, and it's it's not what it once was, right? It's not like you know, like Oregon Trail, one of your horses goes lame, so get the rifle kind of thing anymore. And the thing that um, I think people need to understand about sled dogs is that 
right or wrong, eugenics, whatever, you know, we can have different arguments, but they really like pulling things. I mean, they just really dig it. They were bred to do it. They enjoy it. They love all being together. And if you're going to have a, like, I, I don't think you can make the same case for the, you know, the, the horse carriages in New York City. Those horses don't seem to be particularly happy, but like dog sledding dogs, maybe they don't want to do, you know, the thousand miles, whatever it is of the Iditarod, but um, they like pulling sleds for sure. Um, I know a guy who goes skajording. I think that's how you pronounce it. You know, skajording. Um, uh, it doesn't ring a bell. No. Yeah. So it is basically using essentially sled dogs um, uh, for uh, you wear a harness and you attach it to the dogs and you do cross country skiing with a couple dogs helping you go up the uphill stuff and that kind of thing and helping you go a little faster on the downhill stuff. It's supposed to be a lot of fun, still a lot of work because like the dogs aren't going to just pull you. You have to do your share. Um, but uh, um. It's also worth pointing out, like in the movies, all the sled dogs are these big ass huskies um, and Samoyeds, and, which are beautiful, just freaking beautiful dogs. Um, but the way to think about them is they're essentially the tugboats of uh, canine locomotion um, in that they don't move really fast and they're for pulling heavy loads. The speed dogs are much smaller. They're like 50, 60 pounds lean, um, much much scrappier looking. Um, but regardless, they like it. And so you shouldn't work them to death. You shouldn't be cruel to them. Um, but like the sled drivers I've talked to, uh, they tend to eat snicker bars on the long races and they cook stew for the dogs. I mean, the dogs are treated pretty well. Uh, I, I thought this was fun and quite clever. If you could wave a magic wand and conduct a social political experiment without any ethical, financial, or logistical concerns, what would you do? So this is, this is one of the problems of not getting the questions in advance. Cause I feel like I could actually come up with a really good answer to this. I mean, obviously we would, again, if, 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 if it wasn't going to hurt anybody, all these kinds of things. And like, if we could do it, do it as an AI program that um, accurately mirrored actual human responses. So you knew you weren't using humans as instruments of stuff, but we would just basically take every set of identical twins born in America and put them in really different circumstances, fighting pits versus accounting school, you know, and just see what comes out of all that. Beyond that, um, I think it's a great question. I'm going to return to it on the next AMA, you can say, John, have you given any more thought about this? And I will have a better answer because I think it's, it's, it's uh, too good a question to waste on something um, completely off the cuff. Um, at the same time, it's, you know, let's also say it's, it's kind of an evil question. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's sort of like if you could be czar where you had, didn't have to pay respect to any human rights whatsoever, what would you do to make, you know, the country better. Like it's like, we don't want to live in a society that, that actually would make this question viable. But someone also asked, which we may also want to say for the next one, if you were dictator for a day, what one policy would you institute? All right, well, I'll give you a couple, I'll give you a few and then we'll sort of figure it out. Right. So one, I would ban public sector unions. I'm not sure that's like, if I only had one wish, that would be the one, but like, uh, that's definitely somewhere on my top 10, top 20 list. I would 
probably get rid of withholding on taxes um, and, um, and probably come up with some sort of, well, so two different ones. One, I would try to come up with something along the lines of a consumption tax instead of an income tax. But two, if we're going to have the income tax, I would get rid of withholding so that people actually understand what they're being forced to pay for in a more concrete way. I would um, probably make tax filing day the same day as election day so that you could actually vote on the back of your check for your candidate because that way you would get be getting what you pay for. It's amazing how, what a coincidence it is, is that April 15th and, and November 7th are almost as far apart as humanly possible on the calendar because they want to separate the product from the price. What else? I would... I just don't know that a dictator can do this, but I would, um, if there was some mechanism by which I could do it, I would completely flip the political pyramid in the United States and invest. I mean, this is more magical thinking than it is like pass a law or issue an edict, but longtime listeners and readers know I'm kind of all in on the federalism stuff. And I would want the federal government to just handle a handful of things, most of the ones that are basically spelled out in the Constitution, and then push everything down to the most local level possible. But I don't need to do my whole federalism spiel here. I would, for example, though, take most of the cabinet agencies and hand them off to the states, right? And so the, the best example of this is uh, veterans, uh, the VA hospitals or the VA healthcare system. It's a total mess. It's a total outrage. It does a bad job. I know Trump says he fixed it. He didn't fix it. But it may, I think he probably made it better. But we should, if we're going to have a VA system, which I don't think we necessarily should, I, I would have much better, be much more comfortable just giving basically free healthcare gift certificates to take on the open market wherever they want to go rather than have to rely on VA hospitals. Regardless, the reason I bring up VA hospitals is the problem we have now is that every five, 10 years, there are these terrible scandals about what a just complete mess they are, um, where whistleblowers get fired, where people who cover up crimes get promoted, scandal after scandal. And um, all 435 members of Congress, um, or 535 if you include the Senate, are outraged by it. And they say, this must never happen again. No one gets blamed because it's the system. It's the bureaucracy. It's this amorphous thing. Um, and the more local you can push these functions, uh, the easier it is to know who to fire. Um, the easier it is to know who to hold accountable for successes and failures. And so I would, maybe with a, big check stapled to them. You know, if there's a veterans hospital in Arizona, it's no longer a federal thing. It belongs to the state of Arizona. Here's, you know, $500 million to work out the kinks and now you're in charge of it. And just send these functions to the most local level possible so that um, uh, the people closest to the problems are the ones in charge of the problems. And that's not how our federal system works. I would invert the pyramid. Where have you never traveled that you'd most like to visit? Oh, big chunks of Asia. I really want to go to Hong Kong. Never been to Hong Kong. Um, I mean, maybe not right now, alas. Uh, but um, I really want to go to Argentina. Never been to Argentina. Um, I would love to go to Buenos Aires. I hear the dollar goes a long way there right now. Um, I used to be fascinated with Malta. I still haven't been. But my understanding is that Malta has not leveraged its exotic sounding past, its exotic past and exotic sounding sort of brand with actual 
quality investments in its tourist infrastructure. Um, so I'm less, less keen on it. I'd love to go to Morocco. Um, I really don't want to go back to Russia, seeable future. I don't know. I mean, at some point I'd love to see parts of China. I've never been, I mean, I have I really haven't, I've been to Japan as a young man. My decision tree went somewhat awry there. Mistakes were made, but I had a really good time. That's hence the mistakes were made part. This was with, um, this was when you were on Think Tank, right? Yeah. It was when I was, we produced a bunch of shows in Japan. Um, a lot of fun. Uh, really interesting. Like to go back. Um, but I haven't been to China. I haven't been to, if I could travel the way I wanted, I would love to go to India. Um, but like the idea of budget travel in India just leaves me cold. Um, um, and at some point, I, my wife really, really wants to go to Australia. And my problem is, is like the amount of time you have to take off to justify that flight. You know, you don't go to Australia for a couple of days. You know, you, you got to go. Um, I just haven't been able to claw out that kind of time. So there are a lot, I don't know, there are a huge number of places. There's really no place in the United States that I haven't been to one extent. Or, there's no state I haven't been to. You know, there's some states I'd like to go spend more time in. I feel like I really have not given Rhode Island its due. I don't know. I w- top of my list, I guess, would be like Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, Taiwan. Um, one of those guys. I really like to see those places. Uh, speaking of the third Jessica, who has clearly played Mighty Spoonie before, I thought this would be a fun one to end on. If the third Jessica divorced you and John Bedhoritz's wife divorced him, and the two of you were forced to move in together <laughs> into a Manhattan apartment, what kind of hilarity would ensue and would you be able to share it without making each other crazy? Um, for those who don't get it, this is an odd couple joke. But um, I think the thing to know is that Pod would definitely be Felix and I would be Oscar. Uh, I think Pod is much more of a control freak than I am. Um, I don't know that he's actually a neat freak, but um, I think he's, uh, he's more like Felix than I am. I will put it that way. Although neither of us are really qualified to be sports writers and neither of us would be photographers either. But like, I think he's going to, I'm going to hear about this from him in the next 48 hours and, and we'll see. But uh, yeah, no, I, I think, uh, I think we would make terrible, terrible, terrible roommates. I just want to be just, I just put it out there like that. Um, I don't know that. uh, And like, I can't get my mind around like inviting the pigeon sisters on a double date with pod. That's just not, it's not, it's just not a direction I need to go. So, um, with that mental image, I think we are done. In fact, um, guy, thank you for this. By the way, I meant to, I went to do this before. Um, so you asked for last Friday off. Where did you go? Uh, I was, I was in New York. There were, there were no kiss related activities on that occasion. Okay. I know, I know it's surprising, but uh, no, nothing kiss related. Although there are many kiss sites to see in New York, because kiss is from New York. But I kiss is from to, New York. Mm-hmm. All four of them. All four of the original members. Really? Why did I think like San Diego or something? They just seem like Southern California to me. Uh, all from from Brooklyn and the Bronx and Manhattan Heights, all neighborhoods like that. 
First gig was in Queens, rehearsed in the loft in the village. It was where they bought all their costumes. It's a rich tapestry, Jonah, very close to home. Clearly, clearly. Um, like Ramones makes sense to me as like bridge and tunnel dudes, but not, not, not kiss. Um, that's interesting. I did not know that. Um, I'm not sure anybody actually cares, but I thought it was interesting. Oh, and uh, one last thing is since we were talking about travel and um, I'm going to London, I'm going to, I'm going to, shipping me I'm off? going to your homeland um, oh. in, uh, in the summer uh, for a wedding. And so we want to make, you know, whenever you go across the, an ocean, you don't want to just like come right back. You want to, you know, make use of the fact that you're there. So we were trying to figure out what to do beforehand. You know, my wife is working on this book about her dad. And her dad had taken this, had hiked across the Alps to um, get out of the communist zone, let's put it that way, into the um, freedom-loving zone. And, um, um, and my wife has figured out what the actual trail was. And apparently it was used by Jews during World War II. And then... Afterwards, it was used by refugees from communism. And so my father-in-law came across and I say, came over to 47, 48, something in there. And uh, so I think what we're going to do is we're going to um, go to Austria and we're going to hike it. Um, yeah, it's going to be really cool. You know, um, apparently, you know, it's, it's not going to be that arduous, thankfully. Um, uh, I, I kind of gathered, yes. Yeah, well, I mean, like, like old ladies who were running away used it. So like, Presumably, I, I'll just be, be able to do it. Um, and, uh, uh, but no, that should be really interesting. And it'll add some like really good sort of context and color for the book project. So um, there's that. When you started that, I assumed you were putting me in a box and shipping me off somewhere for some kind of human experiment. So I'm glad that's not the case. Well, that's yeah, just, let's just put a pin in that. Yeah, that's for year three. All right. Um, I got to go. I'm giving a, talk downtown shortly and um i have to go put on like grown-up clothes so um thanks everybody for tolerating this uh we'll see if pod still thinks the amas are good um i'm 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 always skeptical but uh it is what it is and you know anything that's not a solo is good by guy they can't be any worse than that jonah i'm t i'm team pod for a change and other than that i'll see you next time do I have to do the thing? <laughs> I, I don't know. Someone's got to. No, you will not, Jonah. This is still a podcast. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.